Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Edgar Wright's newest film, Baby Driver. The film stars Ansel Elgort as Baby, a getaway driver who can do practically anything with a car, so long as the correct song is playing through his earphones. After meeting the woman of his dreams and making plans to leave his life of crime, Baby is coerced into one last getaway job. But when things go awry, all of his skills will be put to the test if he has any hope of survival. In addition to Baby Driver, Mr. Wright's credits include the feature films The World's End, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Hot Fuzz, and the BAFTA Award-nominated Shaun of the Dead, as well as episodes of the television series Spaced, Sir Bernard's Stately Homes, and Asylum. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Wright spoke with director Christopher Nolan about filming Baby Driver. During their conversation, Mr. Wright speaks about directing his first U.S. set film, how he came up with the idea for the movie 22 years ago, and explains the meticulous preparation necessary to execute the music-driven sequences. So did you enjoy the film? Come on. Thank you. So how many of you here have seen World's End? Okay. And Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, French and Saunders Christmas special. <laughs> In the UK, everybody put In the UK, exactly. So <laughs> I guess the question here is, you know, we're all devotees. Now that you've had this enormous success with this movie, it's kind of annoying that we have to share you with the rest of the world. <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> um, no, it's it's very uh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Like, so the response so far has been fantastic. It's been such a. I I have a I have a real trouble. I was saying this before. I have real trouble, like, sort of uh, coming to grips with the fact that it's out. I still think of it as this movie that I've been telling people about for years. So yeah. you know, you like think of like the, when you feel like the boy who cried wolf. It's like, when I, I keep talking about Baby Driver, it's like, oh, it's actually out. I was saying to Irma, in the car on the way here, we had exactly that conversation. We we're like, for years, you're talking about this, talking about it. And you sort of, yeah, you start to feel like, okay, when's it really going to happen? Now it's real and it's here and we can all enjoy it. And uh, congratulations. It's a phenomenal piece of work. Thank and you. Many years in the making, as you know. So for somebody who comes at, pop culture in a way, and certainly the way you've expressed it in your film so far, very much from a British point of view. I mean, to the extent of, you know, when you talk about um, Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy, does anybody have any idea what that means here? I mean, I've just, like, it's such a, it's such a random English kind of... <laughs> it is, it is the, know, only, uh, the only country a, in the world that don't sell Cornettos. Uh, exactly. Yeah. The Cornetto ice cream combined <laughs> with the Kislowski Three Colors Red trilogy. It's like bizarre. 
almost perverse, almost willfully, just for the English, just for the English, just for the British. Um, how is it going American? It's not the first time you've done it, but in this way, did you find, because you've been living here, or is it more drawn from culture? How did you, how did you feel about, about going American in this way? I think, well, it's the first um, I, shot a movie in, I shot a movie in Canada, which is also set in Canada. So this is my first US shot, US set movie. And I guess I sort of just been building up to it. Um, and part of that is like being from the UK and growing up watching the films that influenced this, sort of having the confidence to write a US set movie was something that why it's so sort of long in the making. And what's funny is that when I first came up with the idea, like sort of literally 22 years ago, even back then I knew it wasn't a British film. Like, um, and partly, and you can clarify this, is that, London isn't really built for car chases anymore. It's definitely not. It used to be in the <laughs> 60s and 70s and 80s. But yeah. then I think sometime in the mid-80s, London got car chase proofed. Uh, and so you don't really see car chase movies in London. And even something like Fast 6, when they shot in London, they had to shoot their London scenes elsewhere because you couldn't shoot <laughs> car chase in London. So I, I, knew, I knew that it was going to be an American film. And I think part of the process of writing it, which I started... Uh, even though I'd had the idea for like 22 years, I didn't start sort of physically gathering the research to write it until like 10 years ago. And mm. part of that was just living over here more. Mm. And just, um, I just found I had to do lots of things to authenticate it. So part of that was being here. And part of that was, I literally drove across the States at one point. Like I did the, my sort of low speed vanishing point. <laughs> <laughs> my legal version of vanishing point. <laughs> which took 10 days instead of 72 hours um, <laughs> of like driving from New York to LA um, and listening to music the entire way is sort of just one of the things I did to kind of get in the zone. Well, is that, there's been a gradual process of, you know, really, well, from Shaun of the Dead, but Hot Fuzz as well, of an ironic representation of the American action cinema. Yeah. And I, when I see this, I sort of start to feel like there's been a gradual, you've been, very slowly coming out as an action director. <laughs> and I think, you know, for me, the action is so spectacularly well-directed in, in this film. It has been, I mean, World's End, the fight scenes, I thought, you know, we talked about it after I saw it. I mean, I really love the way you put those together. But the, all of the, the foot chases, the car chases in this, it's like, oh, you really mean it. You know, you really enjoy this stuff. This is, this is great. And there's, there's something very American about that, about embracing that and just the, the showmanship of that. I think even with the previous films, the British kind of trilogy, they're all made out of affection. Like I used to always bristle when people would call them send-ups because I was thinking, well, they're not like send-ups because that sending-up means that you're satirizing it, which in some ways makes it seem like you don't like it. Whereas like mm -hmm. the zombie films, the cop films, the sci-fi films, I love those. They're like, I, I always saw them as Valentines. And in this one, I think it was always the intention to make something that was actually music i mean obviously there's a, sub, a subjective twist to it with the music mm. but in terms of the heist and action element is just do that kind of you know sort of dead ahead and play that straighter and make it more relentless and even though the previous films have you know people die in them and stuff this one is just to make the sort of violence you know have no kind of quotation marks to it at all like sort of try and make it feel more real and the stakes feel more real so that was something that always was the intention right from the start and um you know and and that that was uh i like i said i've been edging towards this and it was something that i wanted to sort of do and i think there are obviously things 
the sort of idiosyncratic things from the previous movies that carry over. But I think at heart, it's maybe more of a, a sincere movie, or it's certainly intended to be. Yeah. The synchronization with the music, the, the idea of that, when I saw the film, I suddenly thought, oh, you know, because I've spent my life listening to music as I write films and as I conceive of films and to the extent of stopping and rewinding and suddenly and trying to sort of synchronize the images in your head with particular tracks you're hearing. And I watched the film and I thought, oh, I guess I'm not the only filmmaker who does that. Oh, yeah. But I'd never thought to actually make that film with that music that I'd been using. But is that the genesis? Yeah, I mean, I did a similar thing when I wrote the other movies as I would probably same as you as listen to scores or instrumentals or never things with lyrics, but like <laughs> always like scores, instrumentals, even dance music that would be in the right vein. So it would not have the lyrics to be distracting, but you know, so write things in, listen, listen to things within that genre to get inspired. And with this movie, I wrote only to the songs that are in the film. So it's quite a kind of... Uh, and before I even started writing the first draft, I had about eight of the set pieces earmarked, as in I knew what the songs were, and through an outline I knew basically what happened in them. Or, you know, sometimes it would be, it's probably the closest thing I have to sort of action movie synesthesia or something, is that that opening track, Bell Bottoms, which I heard in 1995, when I listened to that track, I couldn't not think about a car chase. And so I'm having the image of the scene and anytime I listen to the song, I see the scene. So at some point, I think, I've got to come up with the movie to go with this vision. <laughs> and then that's how it sort of started to come about, because then it was the first thought was, well, it's a getaway driver. Or what if he is picking the song? And what if he can't move or function if he doesn't have the right song? And then the whole thing, and this was even before the iPod came out, the idea of sort of soundtracking your life. Uh, you know, so by the time I started writing, a number of things that happened is that, I've been thinking about it for a long time. The iPod had sort of appeared, and with, through that and then the iPhone and all the listening devices later, you literally were in a position as a person to soundtrack exactly what's going into your ears at 24 hours a day if you wanted to, mm. which is a very different thing to listen to one album or listening to the radio. It's mm. actually a thing where it's like, now I am soundtracking my life, and a lot of people use it as like a way of controlling their mood or motivating them. Mm. And then the other thing that I did was uh, I did a music video in 2003, which was like a dry run for the opening scene. And I didn't, I sort of did it, it ended up being a test run. But the reality was is that when I, I did the video, I couldn't think of another idea. So, I, and I thought I'd squandered uh, my idea for the movie on this cheap dance video. <laughs> but it ended up, turned out well. And it just became one of those things that kept, because the, there's a little clip of it in the movie stars Noel Fielding, who you might know from the TV show The Mighty Boosh. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things that that video kept kind of reverberating around and eventually it was like a proof of concept or even just backdating the idea. It was like, oh, I have this thing from 2003. Mm -hmm. It's basically like the concept. But um, So when did you start writing it? I started writing, I started trying to write like 10 years ago. And, and that was like, I, I think, and then I went off and did a movie. But by that time I amassed an amount of stuff that became very useful. So the, the main, the f how I first started doing it was that I, um, I had all these songs, like eight of them, and I don't read music and I don't play any instruments. I wish I did. I found like a music editor to help me break them down. So I had like a much more uh, like sort of sophisticated breakdown of those songs. What's funny is the music editor that I spoke to 10 years ago was Stephen Price. <laughs> Before then, he wins an Oscar for Gravity. 
uh, like, and before he worked on two of my films, he worked on Scott Pilgrim and The World's End and Attack the Block, which I produced. Mm. And then he wins an Oscar for Gravity with his second score, which is pretty amazing. But I have these things that he did from like 10 years ago, these PDFs where he broke down the songs for me. And then when I started writing the scripts, I would r write the what's happening in the action and what's happening in the song together. Mm. So you could really get across the idea that the action and the music are completely interlinked. Now, they always say it's like a really foolhardy thing to write the song titles into a screenplay. <laughs> and it is, but I still did it. <laughs> because they say if, like, if you put the song titles into a script and the publishers of that song get wind of that, then that's like adding a zero on the end. They yeah. go, oh, I see how important Hocus Pocus is to this movie. Let's make it three times as expensive. Um, but I had to kind of write the stuff in, and, and that was a whole process of... Uh, so, sorry, writing the lyrics? Sometimes. And what was going on with the... Sometimes. I would, right. like, I would be... The first draft of the script was so anal in terms of, like, if the song was five minutes long, it was five pages. Um, if it was the song was two and a half minutes long, the scene was two and a half pages. Right. And I sort of just tried to kind of block it out so I could figure out the exact timing. Because the other thing I wanted to do was, like, have a song per scene and have that scene be as long as the song. So sometimes you're letting the song dictate what's kind of happening. And so I did that with most of the big numbers, like especially the, the Hocus Pocus chase, the foot chase, is that it's stop-start nature of him running and then hiding and then running and then hiding in a clothes shop is me just kind of following what's happening in the song. Is that right. has guitars, 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 yodeling breakdown. <laughs> Not many, not many songs have a yodel breakdown. Um, so I was just kind of following that, using that as the thing. Which, but just to to get into the heart of the process a little bit. Um, so you've got that in your imagination. You're listening to that music and you're visualizing how you're going to do that. How do you communicate that to your crew? How do you plan that? How are you? Is it storyboards? Is it previs? Is it like what's what's the process of of taking that internal process and making it clear? It's pretty much a bit of everything. And also kind of sharing everything with everybody. I'm not like one of those people who's very secretive about the process. I just have to lay it out for everybody involved. Camera, stunts, choreography, locations, AD department. Like, you know, I share the... So basically, a number of things. It's like boards for everything, even the dialogue scenes. Like very sort of specific script. And then animatics, like cut to the music because... The good thing about doing things to the music is actually with the action stuff, you actually end up with zero fat. It's not like on any of those action scenes, we've got millions of other setups or angles. I mean, pretty much what we shot is what is in the movie. And that's because right. if the song is five minutes long, then this chase is five minutes long. And working with the stunt guys, you're then kind of like almost like reverse engineering into huh. these. So even, <coughs> even when it looks like multi-camera type setups, you've got to long lens profile of him walking through the parking garage you got those are things you're actually doing single camera to a plan sometimes i mean never mm. that more than like <coughs> on the you know never really use more than two cameras mm -hmm. on main unit and usually you have like a hero shot and then sometimes like a b shot and if you can get two hero shots at the same time great but if your b shot is screwing up your a shot forget it that's basically the way me and bill pope would do it it's like so make sure that the a shot yeah. is what you wanted and if you can get a great B shot, great. If not, don't worry about it. Yeah. So sometimes let's say that tequila gunfight sequence, it's pretty much like every shot is like an A shot and we just shoot that bit 
and there's no master shot. Sometimes the script supervisors kind of start having a nervous breakdown because mm. there's no ma there's no master wide of the scene. It kind of it is what it is. Right. And so I mean, pretty much with the action scenes, that's what we did all the way through. Is you're just doing it in order, and just doing those kind of setups. And then the other big thing about that was editing on set, which I'd never used to do. But yeah. my editor Paul Matchless, I got two editors. One of them was there the whole time. And whenever we do action stuff and it's all in sequence, you could just edit it to the music as you were going. And just you could because you're shooting on film, so you're cutting the, the video feed. Just cutting the video feed. Yeah. So we had a, a good like um, high def feed, and we could right. cut to that. But it would be something where you could just keep, keep in track of it. But to go back to your original question, the things of showing with the crew would be animatics of everything, mm. then starting to shoot video of everything, both with the choreographers and the stunt team. I guess the other big thing that we had, which is kind of crazy, which I've had some of these like for nine years, is when I first wrote the script. I had the songs, and I had this British DJ friend of mine, whose name is uh, Mark Nicholson, aka Ozzy Misu. He's like great at doing these kind of found sound remix things. And I said, "Can you?" I gave him very specific timings. I said, "Put sound effects into these songs." So I have these mixes of the songs that have all of the car chase sound effects mixed in, and all oh. of the shootouts. So when you sent it to the studio or the actors, they'd be like, "Ah," they could sort of get a sense oh. of how immersive it was going to be. Right. And then when you cut the storyboards to it, it's, you know, it lined up perfectly. Hmm. So I think with those things, it's like, th that'd be the only way, like we shot, the film was shot in 57 days and only 16 days of second unit in a sort of block in the middle. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get through all of that was that you rehearsed everything and you had this kind of plan. And so mm. there's very little... There's very little time spent on the day figuring out what's going to happen. It's like everybody has the list. Right, and you're knocking pieces off the list yeah. every day. And obviously there's kind of happy accidents and, you know, I don't want it to sound like it's so precise that there's not something that, you know, something like a location will be like, oh, the foot chase had a whole bit with an elevator. Well, we can't really find a mall that we like that has an elevator. Well, what about these escalators? Or mm. like um, there's a great thing in <laughs> in the second chase where, the second chase, which is the one to the damned, the one with Flea and Jamie Foxx. And I cut together the animatic to the song. And Bill Pope, my cinematographer, had watched the animatic and he said, you're going to run out of song. And I say, why do you say that? He goes, because you've edited it in such a way that's so fast that the actual cars are going to take longer to do the stunts and you're going to want to see those stunts for longer and you're going to run out of song. And I was like, well, let's see. And of course he was right. <laughs> and... I had, because I'd been editing as I went, I could see the sequence. It's like, ah, oh, the song runs out like 30 seconds before the scene finishes. And I don't want to have a second song because I don't want to have a second song. And I can't have no song because that goes against the point of the movie. So in that sequence, when they carjack the new car with the young mother, you see that shot of Ansel Elgort whipping out his iPod and rewinding the song. Mm. <laughs> that, was, that was shot on the last day of the shoot. I said, I, I know what to do. <laughs> and it... And it's funny because then those, it's really when you get into those sorts of solutions, you start to think, oh, I, like, I am the character. You've become the character. I've become the character totally. at this point. That's exactly what the character and I would do is like, because he's already had to rewind it twice at the start. So I kind of thought that was the... So there's things that came out of it, the weirdly like character-defining moments, that thing of yeah. him rewinding, not in the scripts, not in the boards. So I don't want to make out that like every single thing was planned, but it's definitely something like to kind of get through something with this density is that 
and I share that with all departments so that mm -hmm. like, so you're not in a situation where anybody's coming to set and saying, what are we doing today? Right. You know? Uh, so you did use a second unit? Yeah, there was like thing? sort of, for Darren Prescott was the second unit director who was also the stunt coordinator. Mm. And it was very, <laughs> it was very tough because I basically, we, he only had like 16 days in the middle of the shoot. And I think my, the roughest kind of times for me was that we were shooting action. Basically, the way it worked out schedule-wise with the actors, it wasn't something where you could do action, drama bit, action, drama bit. Mm. It just worked out that in the middle month of the shoot was just like all action all the time mm. on main and second. So everybody's like maxed out. And there were times when I was shooting the finale of the movie like for like 14 hours at night going to second unit in the morning, having breakfast with Darren, sticking around for the first couple of setups, making sure I knew what they're doing in the day, going to bed for six hours, coming back to second unit, seeing how they did, and then going to work on main unit at night for another 14 hours. And that kind of continued for about, I remember there's a bit of a run of 20 days where I didn't stop working. But it was, it was, it was punishing. It was totally mm. punishing. And it was the only way to really get through it. And it was punishing for Darren as well. And it was that thing where we were shooting in Atlanta and every single location that we wanted to use for action was Saturdays and Sundays only. Yeah. So we shot weekends for the entire shoot, which is tough on a crew, just morale-wise. Mm. So there's no like weekends, the, the days off for like Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah. And, uh, but it was just that thing, it's like freeways and like yeah. sort of any street car chase scene is like Saturdays and Sundays only. Yeah. And so... But the good thing about that was is that all that stuff was in the middle, which meant that me and then Darren continued to stunt coordinate until the end. Mm. So it's all the same team. And then sort of we had a good thing then basically because we'd seen what he'd managed to do in those days and we knew where we had problems or there were things that were missing or things that didn't work or extra stuff that we needed or shots that hadn't been got. And so then we had the opportunity within our schedule to sort of go back and like sort of put in the hero pieces. So then me and Bill Pope and our main uh, camera operator, Roberto, went with Darren to do extra bits for most of the scenes. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting jigsaw. So there was no action sequence where we finished it all in one go. Always mm -hmm. like returning to bits of it. So the most of the actors were in there either for blocks or people like Ansel and John Hamm were there for the whole thing. John Bernthal was the actor who got the short straw because he's only in the first two scenes, but he had to come back to Atlanta like nine times because <laughs> he's in the first scene. And sometimes he'd come back and he'd just be doing reactions in the car. I mean, that's the other thing that made it extra complicated mm. is that we did all of the car shots of the actors on the freeways themselves. So there's Oh, really? Actually, up on those roadways. So yes. no green screen. There's Looking only tiny the bits of green screen, like in, in a couple of places we did some little green screen pickups, but mm. the, I'd say like 90% of it is in camera. Mm. And I think you can tell because like the sort of, yeah. you know, you right. can just see the rigs are sort of shuddering in such a way that you just, and yeah. also the actors are reacting in a different way. Yeah. I think the thing is when you get green screen car acting, people are like overacting. Yeah. They're going, <laughs> <laughs> but if it's really happening, they're concentrating on what they're doing. Yeah. And so there's brilliant bits like when John Bernthal grabs like the oh shit handle. And I was thinking, is he doing that as a character or as an actor? Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, it's just happening. What He's were going, the driving rigs you used then to get those shots? Uh, most of it was done with um, Alan Padelford's uh, The Biscuit and The Pod, mm, right. which are both incredible. 
So what that, I'm sure a lot of people in the audience know, but like the biscuit is basically, it's not a low loader. The low loader's gone and the low loader you can only really do for, it's good for like dialogue and slower. Yeah. But this was like, it means that it's like the car is on its own. You've used one. It's used yeah. on a six wheel rig, which means that the, you can put cameras on it and you can have a little platform for cameras, but the actor's completely independent of a trailer mm. and the pod, so Robert Nagel would be on this pod like a sidecar on the outside, but that would mean that that whole rig could go 80 miles an hour if need be with the mm. actors inside and you could fit two, maybe three cameras on there. Mm. And eventually, and this is, was, this is one of those things where it's like a bold idea that then you're a, you can never go back on, but you know this, you follow in the command van. So you're in the command van watching the monitors, but frequently like the satellites would like crap out. Mm. And when you're in the middle of a car chase thing, I just sort of said, eventually I said, I want to sit where the camera assistants are and I want to sit on the, on the biscuit. And I was like strapped in to the biscuit. And it was that thing. Once you've, once you've made one of those suggestions in front of the, the tough stunt crew, you can't really go back on it. <laughs> so I was like strapped in and I was, so I was sitting on the biscuit with a monitor, hardwired monitor, and my walkie and a hat. And every single time we'd drive off, I'd always be like. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd be watching it live. And it'd be amazing because then you could also look straight at the actors. Mm. But I was also like a British director in Georgia. I just wasn't ready for the heat or like, I was always wearing yeah. too many clothes. I was getting like sunburned. And John Hamm said he could see me like struggling in these shots. And he said later that I looked like a, a floppy sunburned Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that thing, but, the, but just being there, like yeah. being in it was so much better. And then also I was like sitting on the engine and it was getting really hot. And I remember Bill Pope said to like um, Alan Padelford, he said, uh, why don't you have like a seat for the director? And he said, because no director has ever sat on there before. <laughs> <laughs> but all that aside, what it meant was is that like, I can, I can talk to the actors and they, if they can't yeah. hear me on the walkie, they can at least you can mime it to them what to be doing. Because as you know, with car stuff, once you get into doing any car scene, any idea of articulate direction goes out of the window. Yeah. It's got to no, be. They're, in, the, down they're to in a weird bubble. Yeah. And also they can't hear you. Yeah. You know, so any direction has to get down to like one or two words. Yeah. And then you wind up saying. Just do it yourselves four or five times. Keep rolling. I would, you, know. you just end up being like saying like intense, intense. <laughs> <laughs> it's like nothing else to say when it's that loud and you're on the, when you're on the freeway, there's nothing else to say other than that. Uh, just have to remind them that the camera's rolling and we shot on film as well. So the other thing is like, to, I, and I, I know that um, there is, there is, I must say there's about 10% of the movie that's on digital for various reasons. And I said to Chris after he watched it before, I said, how did you feel about the digital shots? And he said, I closed my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> For 90%, 95% of it is on 35. Which with car stuff in this day and age is, you know, it's like people look at you like you're crazy. It's like you want to be changing like mags every, every take. But it, I mean, it looks great. Try IMAX, mate. <laughs> um, I know, I believe it. I, like, I believe Bill, it. how many... Uh, <laughs> How many films have you done with Bill now? Bill this Pope. is my third film with Bill Pope. So describe the relationship a little bit. Get into a bit of that. Like how, how you know, when you're blocking action, do you involve Bill in that process? Or? Yeah, I mean, Bill's one of those great DPs because he, he sort of thinks, 
he doesn't just think about the shots. One of the reasons I really warmed to him as soon as I met him is he thinks about everything. He thinks about the performances. He thinks about the heart of the story. Mm. He's not just, I mean, he sort of thinks, talks about all of that because he's one of those unflappable DPs who's kind of done everything at this mm. point in his career. Even before he started doing features, he'd done like 200 music videos before he started working. I think his first feature was Dark Man with Sam Raimi. And mm. like between all of the movies he's done, like he's sort of done everything at some point. So that's one of the things about him is he never is, he's never ever, um, he's unflappable in terms of what you can do visually. He's usually sort of thinking about the story and the emotion of it mm. and the lighting of the actors in terms of like making them look as great as they can be. But I mean, he's also, and he's one of those people who has to get, he's, he operates B camera and then sometimes he can be pressed into operating A camera because he is, one of like the world's best operators, one of the best action operators, bar none. But he's also like in his mid sixties now, so he kind of like does it begrudgingly. <laughs> but then sometimes if it's like somebody's not nailing it, Bill say, "Let me have a go," and then you know that the next take's going to be perfect. And he's yeah. just like, he's just one of those amazing people to have around. I mean, I feel like I wear him out, and sometimes I I do this. I even though I do all the storyboards, I still do a shot list every morning. Mm. And I've come to realize for my AD and my DP, I've realized that like, if if the shot list is going to go on to two pages, <laughs> I do some clever editing to make sure it stays on one page. Because <laughs> I know if I hand in a shot list to my AD or Bill that's two pages long, they go, oh boy. But like Bill, literally, he'll look at my shot list and he'll say, you have 40 setups on here. Because that means we have to do one every 20 minutes. And I'm like, let's do it. <laughs> like <laughs> so so he's 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 pretty unflappable and he also like really um I think I like I definitely like nearly wore him out on this one but I know he's like really I mean you know he's really proud of it but it was it's also just an exhausting movie because there's no easy scene in it I think Bill said this he said if it's not action it's music and if it's not music it's choreography so there was mm. always something complicated in every scene because even outside of the action scenes, we're basically doing playback the entire time. Mm. So somebody on set is listening to the music. It might just be Ansel listening on his mm -hmm. earphones connected to playback. It might be him with an earwig. It might be playing out loud. Or it might be something that all of the cast can hear. So there's crazy things like just with the playback, like that opening Steadicam shot with the coffee run positioned around those three city blocks of speakers playing Harlem Shuffle. But mm. then when you get into inside the coffee shop, Baby and the barista have dialogue and then sound switch the sound into their ears only. Into mm -hmm. and then it's only Ansel and the camera operator, Roberto, and me that can hear it. And then when that dialogue's over, the music comes back into the speakers again. Those are just trying to record that live sound. Mm. And also, <laughs> that kid who plays the barista was 16 years old and it was his first time ever on a movie set. And I think it started to, he started to realize during the day that he was like the centerpiece of this long <laughs> three-minute steady cam <laughs> shot for his first day ever on a movie set. So, just, so there's a lot of sort of complicated things to it. So I think, you know, it was something that uh, for me and Bill, it was always, it was never like, I don't remember that ever being like an easy day. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe one day, I think when we did the junkyard, and even if it was an easy day, say the junkyard is that, that was a, like a 10 hour French hours day and we'd sort of got everything in eight hours. But then at the end of a movie like this, when you've got two hours spare, you know, you go, what cars can we do uh, accelerator shots off? <laughs> and then you, you know, I yeah. mean, literally the last three days of the shoot was just doing close-ups of gear sticks, 
and steering <laughs> wheels and pedals. And yeah. at some point, everybody plays a foot. <laughs> and at some point, anytime one of the cars is done, it's like, get rid of the Subaru, it's done. We've shot every single shot we can of that thing. So yeah. that was the last three days of the shoot was just doing like inserts, yeah. you know. Well, it's an extraordinary puzzle. There's so many more things that, that we don't have time to, to get into. Um, but I think the way it's come together, I think, you know, clearly everybody agrees, but it, it's a really masterful piece of work. And just thrilled to be able to sit and talk to you about it. And uh, so thank you very much for coming to, to talk. Thank you for doing it, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.